I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God. And so may we attend to it and receive it from him as such. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is the word of the Lord. Let us thank Him for it. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the giving of Your Word and particularly this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to behold His glory, we pray now, Father. Increase our faith. Challenge us and strengthen us, we pray, by your Spirit and by your Word as we feast upon it, to be about the mission that you have left us, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I'm sure we've all seen it in one way or another, but anytime you see it, it's very discouraging and disheartening. It's discouraging and disheartening any time that you see a church begin to lose sight of the mission that Christ commanded us to carry out. We have a term in our culture, we call it mission drift. It's when an organization starts out with a particular mission in mind and they start to drift from it. And mission drift for the church is particularly disheartening because this is not a mission that we came up with. 
This is a mission that we were given by Christ, commanded as His church to carry out. And what is that mission? Well, we find it in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, where the Lord Jesus says to His disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what's the mission? What's the command that he's given us? It's to proclaim the gospel. And so whether times are good or times are bad, brothers and sisters, we see this all throughout the church. It starts to drift away from that. Maybe because times are hard, like the original audience that John is writing to. And so, you know, if I full-throated proclaim the bad news and the good news, the world's not going to like that, and so I'm going to be persecuted more severely. I'm going to suffer more harshly. And so maybe I just soften the message a little bit. This is the constant temptation to drift from the mission. And so I'm so thankful for Revelation chapter 10 because it serves as like a smelling salts for us to wake us up if we have been drifting from the mission in our minds as the church and reminding us this is why Christ has left us here in the latter days as John has defined them ever since the ascension of Christ until his second coming. We have been left here as the church to proclaim the gospel. Anything else is a distraction from that. And so I pray that we are encouraged as we look at this and challenged to not allow our hearts and minds to drift from what Christ has left us to do. And the way that we're going to look at this passage, look at the two focuses of the passage. First of all, in verses 1 through 7, we're going to see that the first focus of the passage is this mighty angel. And we'll see in the descriptions of the angel what it represents and symbolizes and means for us as the church. So first we'll look at the mighty angel in verses 1 through 7. And then second of all, we'll look at the little scroll in verses 8 through 11 and see that though John has a unique calling in what he is to do as a result of receiving and then eating this scroll, he also is a representative. He's representing the church and the fact that we have now eaten this scroll, as it were, and we are now to proclaim the gospel to kings and to those in authority, and to all the nations. And so may the Lord use His Word to remind us of why He has left us here, and what we are to be about, and the kind of response we can expect from the world as well, one of hostility. So let's look first then at the angel, beginning in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. So John sees this mighty angel coming down, but you notice that he describes it as another mighty angel. Well, that should cause us to ask the question, well, where was the other mighty angel that he saw? And this takes us back to Revelation chapter 5. You recall that there was a mighty angel there, who also, by the way, had a scroll in his hand. That one was sealed. 
And he calls out in a loud voice, which this mighty angel also does in verse 3. And so what John is doing here is he's taking us back to chapter 5 and saying that we need to understand there is a close and intimate connection between Revelation chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 10. And we're going to see that all throughout this chapter. I'm going to keep taking you back to Revelation chapter 5 because it informs how we're to understand this passage. The angel is described for us in interesting ways here in this passage because the descriptions, the ways that he's symbolized to us in the Revelation is their descriptors that are normally given to God the Father and to the Son. And that's not normally how angels are described. And so that's going to tell us something very interesting. It's going to tell us that why this angel is not Christ and is not God the Father. He represents the Father and the Son with a particular focus on him representing the Son. So this angel is like the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. We're going to see that comparison in particular. But the first way that this angel is described is as being wrapped in a cloud. And you don't have to know your Old Testament very well to know that this is often how the Lord is described in the Old Testament. He comes in the clouds. Think, for example, of Exodus chapter 19. When the Lord comes down, He descends upon Mount Sinai. He's going to enter into this covenant relationship with His people. And it's told to us that He is enshrined in a thick cloud. And this is just one example. There's all sorts of examples in the Old Testament where this is the case. Or think of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. Who is the Son of Man? He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. And how is He described in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13? He comes with the clouds. Remember when Jesus was being tried before the religious leaders and false testimony was being born against him. And what does Jesus say? He says, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. He's referencing Daniel chapter 7. And John picks this language up in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 when he describes Christ as coming with the clouds. And so what is John doing here? He's saying this angel, he's symbolically representing this to us, this angel represents the Father and the Son. The descriptions continue. Notice that he is described as having a rainbow over his head. A rainbow over his head. Now, we've already seen this in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 3. The one who is seated on the throne. The Father has this emerald rainbow around his head. And John was borrowing that language from Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, where Ezekiel sees the Lord and his glory as being represented as a rainbow over his head. So again, the evidence keeps piling up. What about the next description? We're told that his face was like the sun. Now this is fascinating because according to G.K. Beale, and I verified it, not that I need to verify G.K. Beale, but he says that this is an exact reproduction of the phrase describing Christ's transfigured appearance in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 2 where we're told that his face was shining like the sun. And again, John already picked up this language in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, where he said of the sun that his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So, is that clear enough, what John is trying to show to us here? 
this angel represents the Father and the Son. Now, lastly, he's described in a very interesting way. Lastly, we're told that he has legs that are like pillars of fire. Now, when you hear the phrase pillars of fire, your mind should automatically go back to the Old Testament and to the time of the Exodus. You remember that the Lord, as he's leading his people out of captivity to Egypt and through the wilderness, he manifests his glory and leads them and guides them and provides and protects them through what? Through a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so this angel, having his legs described this way, is showing us that it's the same divine presence that was with God's people under the Old Testament in their wilderness wanderings. That same divine presence is now with His new covenant church, is now with His people providing us and protecting us as we go through our wilderness wanderings in this world on the mission that He left us with. And so right out of the gate, we get this encouragement, and it should remind us of the Great Commission. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Lord is with us to protect us and provide for us, care for us, as we are carrying out the mission that he's left us with. And so that's what this angel is representing here. Now, next we see a description of the angel continue in verse 2. So look at verse 2 with me. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So you notice that there's this little scroll that he has in his hand. And the only other time that a scroll like this has come up is in chapter 5. Again, we notice the connection between chapter 5 and chapter 10. And so our assumption is to be that it's a like scroll. It's similar. It's littler. And this one is not sealed up. It's actually open. And we'll talk about why some of those differences are significant when we look at the little scroll in verses 8 through 11. But suffice it to say for right now, here's what I want you to know about the little scroll. Its contents are essentially the same thing as the scroll that Christ received in Revelation chapter 5. Now, I'll just let that kind of set in your heads until we come back to it because that should kind of blow your mind. And if it doesn't blow your mind right now, it'll blow your mind when we get there in just a little bit. But this little scroll in the angel's hand is essentially the same scroll that Christ was given in Revelation chapter 5. Notice next that the angel is described as having his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, if you know anything about the ancient world, then you know that the way that you showed that you had defeated your enemy was that you put your foot on them. Often after you stripped them of the spoils of war, their armor, their sword, and whatever else they may have had, you then would prop up your foot on them as if to show, look, I've conquered my enemy. And so this angel, in having this stance, is showing us, right, if he represents the Father and the Son, then he's sovereign over all creation. And so again, we're being reminded of the Great Commission, aren't we? Why do we go and make disciples of all the nations? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. And he's sovereign over it all. And so as we look at all the craziness in the world, and all the judgments that Christ 
is bringing down upon his enemies and that we experience as well to purify us. We're to understand that Christ is sovereign over all of it. That's what the symbolism here is of the angel having one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. The angel continues to be described for us in verse 3. Look there. Now the angel called out with a loud voice. Again, like chapter 5. The mighty angel did that there as well. Like a lion roaring when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now notice that his roaring, his voice, is like a lion. Again, the connection back to chapter 5. Because Christ is not just described as the lamb who is slain, who's laid down his life for us in obedience to the Father, so he's qualified to take the scroll. He's also what? He's a lion from the tribe of Judah. And so here is this angel as the representative of the line of the tribe of Judah roaring out and calling forth for John to hear. What's also interesting, and we're going to see a little mysterious, is this mention at the second half of verse 3 of these seven thunders that sounded. Seven thunders that sounded. What in the world could that be? If it, it seems a little mysterious to you, uh, there's good reason why it's mysterious. And let me show you why in verse 4. Look at verse 4. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. John hears these seven thunders, and he's like, okay, I've been given this prophetic calling, so I'm going to write down this revelation, and he's about to do that. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, there's a lot of voices coming from all over the place, aren't there? Angels, the seven thunders, and now another voice is saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now, this language takes us back to Daniel chapter 12, where Daniel is receiving these visions of the latter days, the time that we live in right now, brothers and sisters, the time from Christ's ascension until his second coming. And as John is receiving this, he's told that he is to seal up the revelation. And so, that's exactly what he does. And so John also seals up some of this revelation as well. Now, let me give you my highly, I highly think this is what the seven thunders are. What exactly are they? Well, all throughout the Old Testament and through Revelation, hopefully you've already seen this, thunder represents judgment time and time and time again, doesn't it? It represents judgment, that the judgment is coming. And so what I think this is, is these are seven judgments. Seven judgments that are going to be cast upon the earth yet again. Much like the judgments that we've seen in the seven seals. Or the judgments that came as a result of the seven trumpet blasts. Much like the seven bowls that we're going to look at later on in the book of Revelation. And here's why I think it's not just the language of thunders being judgment. It's also because what I think John is doing here is He's leaning on Leviticus chapter 26. I encourage you to go read this later. Leviticus chapter 26, because we don't have time to do it. The Lord is telling Israel that if they walk in covenant faithfulness with him, he will bless them. But if they don't, four times, he says, I will bring a sevenfold judgment upon you. Do you hear that pattern? Four times. He says there's going to be a sevenfold judgment that comes upon them. And so what is this then? This is 
one of the four sevenfold judgments in the book of Revelation that Christ brings upon the earth. You've got the seals, the trumpets, then you'd have the seven thunders, and then the seven bowls. And so John's taken this and actually made it a part of the structure of this revelation. And so that's, I think that's what the seven thunders are. You are more than happy to disagree with me. I'd love to hear your opinion, but that's what I think the seven thunders are. We hear a little bit more about the seven thunders then in verses 5 through 7. So let's look there. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Now here again, as the angel is swearing, we have a reference back to Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. John is borrowing this language again, and the angel swears that the final judgment upon God's enemies, the wicked, will happen. And so that's what John is referencing here. Furthermore, I think this is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Again, we don't have time to look at all these references, so I encourage you to go do this later. But in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 40 through 43, God himself lifts up his hand to heaven and swears that he will judge the ungodly. Now, interestingly enough, there in Deuteronomy 32, in verse 34, God says that he then seals up those judgments. That's exactly what happens in Daniel chapter 12, and then that's what's happening here in Revelation chapter 10 as well. And what is really fascinating to point out here as well, I don't know if you caught this, but the angel who represents the Father and the Son, he represents God, he's raising his hand, and by whom is he swearing? He's swearing by God. So he's swearing by himself. He has no one greater by whom he can swear, and so he swears by his own name that he will carry out the judgment of his enemies and the enemies of his people. So, what is all this background showing us then? It's showing us that the judgment of God against the wicked will no longer be delayed once the seventh trumpet is blown. In other words, the revelation that was sealed up by Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, and Daniel asks, what's going to be the outcome of these things? And he says, you're not to know. Seal it up. Now it's been opened. It's being opened for us in Revelation. When is this time going to happen? It's been inaugurated and initiated with Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father and will be consummated fully and finally when Christ returns again. And this is not coincidental. This is the answer to the prayers of the saints in Revelation 6 verse 10. How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? against our enemies until you glorify yourself. When the seventh trumpet is blasted, then the judgment will come. Now, before we move on, we have to address one more important thing here. Look at verse 7 with me again. But that in the days of the trumpet, called to be sounded by the seventh angel, now listen to this, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced 
to his servants, the prophets. So what is this mystery of God that is being fulfilled? What is it? What is this mystery? And here's what I think is happening here. The mystery is twofold. First of all, the mystery is that this judgment is inaugurated by Christ dying on the cross. Which is ironic, isn't it? Wait a minute, the way that the kingdom of man is going to be defeated is by the promised Messiah coming and being killed at the hands of his enemies? That looks like the seed of the serpent conquering the seed of the woman. And so, anytime we have this word mystery in the New Testament, by the way, it's for one of two reasons, and they're not mutually exclusive. It's either because it was unclear in the Old Testament, or it's because the fulfillment of the promise or the prophecy was way outside of the bandwidth of the Jews of that day. It was completely unexpected. And so, here we have both, don't we? It was sealed up by Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, and this is not the kind of Messiah the Jews were anticipating. And yet, ironically, by seemingly being defeated at the hands of his enemies, the rulers of the city of man, Christ has begun and struck down and begun to destroy it. And so there's this irony, isn't there? There's this mystery that is now being revealed. Daniel's prophecy is being fulfilled by Christ being crushed by his enemies. Now, there's a second part to this mystery that's closely related to it. And that mystery is that our being seemingly defeated by our enemies is actually how the final conclusion and the final judgment comes about. And you actually see that back in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel says when the holy ones are crushed by their enemies, then the judgment will come. And so what are we seeing here then? We're seeing that Our life is actually to follow the pattern of Christ's, isn't it? First a cross, then a crown. That's how the kingdom comes. First suffering, then glory. We don't like this part, do we? We don't like that, do we? We want the conquering hero. We don't want to defeat our enemies by seemingly being overcome by them through persecution and suffering and potentially even our own deaths. And yet this is what the mystery of God is being revealed to us. So what's the application here for us? That the encouragement, again, think about all the suffering that John's original audience is experiencing. And so they're tempted to get off mission. And so he's telling them, don't. All authority is Christ's. And he is sovereign over all of this. And he is with you. And He will never leave you or forsake you. And He will cause you to persevere and endure until the end. And then He will crush your enemies. So endure. Persevere until the end. So that's what we see first as we look at the angel. Second of all, let's look at what we see with the little scroll. And this will go faster, don't worry. We're not looking at a 50-minute sermon here. Let's look at the little scroll in verses 8 through 11. First looking at verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So, this is fascinating. Again, 
if the contents of the little scroll here are the same contents as the scroll in Revelation chapter 5, you go, why in the world are we receiving it? Because Christ alone was worthy to take that other scroll that was sealed and to open it. And why was he qualified? Because he was the second Adam. He was the true Israel. He was the Son of God. He perfectly obeyed the Father in all that the Father gave him. He was the Lamb who was slain. He did everything that the Father gave him to do to accomplish our salvation so that we're accepted in Christ. And so here's the question then. Why are we able to receive this little scroll? Well, brothers and sisters, behold the incredible intimate union that we have with Christ. How closely we are identified with Him. We are not qualified in and of ourselves to receive this little scroll. But because we are in Christ by grace through faith, we are able to receive it. And so what does that mean? What is the significance of us receiving this scroll? Well, first of all, I already hinted at this in the last point, is that the arc of our lives is going to follow Christ. As the church, just as Christ did, We can expect suffering first, humiliation first at the hand of our enemies, and then we can expect exaltation at the end. Don't expect the exaltation now. Don't expect the crown now. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it worked for Christ. That's not the way it's going to work for us. Because that was the very essence of the scroll, that Christ would bring all these things about by dying, by being the lamb who was slain. But second of all, and I don't want us to miss this, this is the more shocking part. Christ has authority, what we're being shown by him receiving the scroll, Christ receiving the scroll, he has authority to execute both redemption, to bring it about by his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and he has authority to bring about judgment upon his enemies. Isn't that what the son says? The father has given all judgment over to me. And so the son has every right to bring about redemption for his people, and execute judgment upon his enemies. And that's the symbolism in part of the scroll. So this is to blow our minds. In our receiving this scroll, John as representing the church, we're to understand that Christ has invested that authority in the church. Now you say, well, how is that? Brothers and sisters, every time you proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, You understand what is happening. Either salvation or judgment. The Lord uses that means by His Spirit to bring those who are spiritually dead from spiritual death to spiritual life. And we rejoice in that, don't we? That's why we want to. We don't know who the elect are, so we preach the gospel to everybody and pray that the Lord would regenerate them and give them life. But you understand At the same time as we announce that gospel, most don't receive it with joy and gladness, do they? They hate it, and they reject it, and they persecute us, and they look for opportunities to mock us and bring about suffering. And so what is happening? Judgment. They're already judged by the revelation all around them that they don't respond to in worshiping God as they ought to. And then when we share the gospel with them, Judgment is actually added to it when they reject it. So do you see? Behold the authority of the church in the proclamation of the gospel. Authority over both redemption and judgment. I don't think we think about 
the authority of it. This is what it means in part that the church has the keys of the kingdom. Do we think about that? That's a weighty, weighty reality. It's glorious, and it's also weighty, isn't it? And we actually see that in the text here. We see both of those realities, the glory of it and the weightiness of it. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Now, the first thing we need to point out here is though John is a representative of the church, he also has a unique calling, doesn't he? I mean, have any of you, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written down sacred scripture? No. And if you believe you have, come talk to me afterwards, because let's set that straight. But he has a unique calling here, right, as a prophet of God. And this recommissioning that John is experiencing very much mirrors Ezekiel's calling in particular. In Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, where Ezekiel is given this scroll with lamentation and woe written all over it, and he's told to eat it, and it's sweet to his mouth, and it's bitter in his stomach. Jeremiah describes his work as a prophet in the same way. He says, the word of God is sweet to my mouth, but it makes me sick to my stomach. The after effects of it are not good. And so John has a unique calling here. He's being recommissioned. He's already been commissioned once in Revelation 1, and again in Revelation 4, and now he's being commissioned again to receive revelation and prophesy here in Revelation chapter 10. And I don't want to minimize in any way, shape, or form the uniqueness of his calling. But I also want to emphasize the fact that he represents the church. And so what does it mean then that we take this little scroll and we eat it, and it's sweet to our mouth and bitter to our stomach? Well, you don't have to think very hard about this. What is our role? What are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming the Word of God. We're proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say along with the psalmist, do we not, your words are sweeter than honey to me. Sweeter than the honeycomb. We say with Moses in Deuteronomy 8, we say with Jesus when he was tempted by Satan that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is sweet to us. It sustains us. We love it. It is dear and delicious to us. And we love to proclaim it to others, don't we? And so in this sense, it's sweet, but it's also bitter, isn't it? What's bitter about it? It's bitter because of the rejection of the unbelievers that we just talked about. We don't rejoice in the judgment of our enemies because we love to see image bearers of God cast into the eternal fires of hell to suffer under His wrath. We do not rejoice in that as an end in itself. That's horrific to us. They bear God's image, and God is essentially for all eternity defacing that image, if you will. That's not what we rejoice in. We rejoice in the justice of God being upheld in his vindication of his holiness and the vindication of his people but it's bitter to us that those who have the gospel proclaimed to them the only way out from the wrath of god they reject and so they're just heaping it up upon themselves that's bitter to us and so that's why it's bitter the after effects in john's stomach in ezekiel's stomach in jeremiah's and in ours brothers and sisters. And it's also bitter 
Because as we proclaim the good news and folks reject it, there's a bitterness in how they respond to us, isn't there? A bitterness in their hatred for us. They're despising of us. We're going to see in the next section in Revelation chapter 11 how the world just will rail against us and despise us for the gospel message that we proclaim. And yet we are to bring it to everybody, brothers and sisters. That's the very final peace that John receives here. Look at verse 11 with me. He says, And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Who do we take this gospel to? Not just the people that we think are going to respond the way we want them to respond. That's not who John was to prophesy to. He was prophesied all peoples and nations and languages and kings. And brothers and sisters, That is our calling. And we need to gear ourselves up for the fact that that's going to mean suffering first. That's going to be costly. That's going to mean rejection. And we're going to see that more and more clearly as we go through the book of Revelation. And yet, what's our comfort? There's the angel standing on the land and the sea. All authority. In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Nothing's going to touch you except what I sovereignly allow to touch you. If we didn't believe this, there's no way on God's green earth we'd be sending missionaries and their young children to the places we're sending them. We can only send them because we entrust them to the one who's sovereign over all. And he says to them, though we can't go and be with them, he will be with them even to the end of the age. And so therefore they go. We receive the little scroll. We receive the calling. And with joy and gladness we go and make disciples of all the nations. So brothers and sisters, let us not lose sight. Again, who is this revelation of? It's of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way we're going to carry out this mission is if we have our eyes firmly fixed on Him who is sovereign and with us. And He's already walked the path that He's now calling us to walk. And so let us, by His grace, Follow the Lamb who was slain wherever He leads.